Hey there, welcome to the Product Hive Podcast. On this episode, we're bringing you the presentation from our May 2021 product event, where you'll hear from Nate Barrett. Nate is currently the head of interactive experiences at Pluralsight. You have a product vision and a solid strategy for getting there, but how do you know it's the right strategy? How do you remove as much risk as possible and make the right product investments? How do you increase your odds of winning? Well, you make calculated bets. In this talk, Nate will share what he's seen work to win. A big thanks to Lucid for hosting this meetup. So now, let's hear Nate's talk, Removing Luck from Product Bets. So really, really excited and appreciate the offer to, to come speak today. I'm always really impressed with the, the group of folks that we have here at Product Hive and uh, this opportunity that we have to learn from each other. And I'll, I'll preface everything that I say that this is, this is my experience. This is, this is what I believe works, but I also want to recognize that there, there's a lot of ways to, to solve problems. There's a lot of ways to do things. And, and I welcome your feedback. I welcome discussion at the end or even afterward, your thoughts to this approach. And, you know, I'm, I'm always open to learning and, from others and, and finding ways to do things better. So Without further ado, let's let's jump into this. I want to start by so this uh, this picture in front of you is the famous Mount Everest, and part of the reason why I share this is I use it a, a bit as an analogy when we talk about products, often with with the teams that I, I work with, but I also am a geek for documentaries, and I just finished a documentary on Amazon Prime about climbing Everest, and I highly encourage you watch it. It's it's pretty fascinating. I learned a lot in that documentary and I've done some reading since. And it's really interesting that every year, hundreds of people attempt to, to climb to the summit of Everest. And it's a, it's a really risky adventure. Some are successful in making all the, the, the way to the summit and others make it even within hundreds of feet of the summit and actually can't get there. They can they can literally see it. They can, they can, it's right there, but for, for whatever reason, they have to turn back. It may be lack of oxygen. It may be that they're, they're nearly frostbitten. It may be that they're, they're suffering from altitude sickness or whatever ailment that, that may come their way, but it's an incredibly arduous thing both mentally and physically to do as there's notes call out. There's a lot of routes to the top. And the most popular, though, are, are what they call the South Call Route or the Northeast Ridge. And with both of these routes, obviously comes various pros and cons for ways to get there. Both of them, and this is actually calling out the, the, specifically the South Call Route, but both of these popular routes are made up of what they'd call a base camp an advanced camp, and then there's a series of camps along the way. And these camps are, I, I found it really interesting as I, was, I, I watched this documentary and learned more that if, if someone goes to climb Everest, it's not something that they just show up and, and say, hey, I'm going to climb Everest today, and it's going to take me a couple of hours. They're actually investing typically anywhere between 40 and 60 days to make the climb. And what's, what's really interesting about this is 
the vast majority of that time, if, if it's 60 days, for example, roughly 50 of those days are spent between base camp and camp two. Because what these, these climbers are doing is they're acclimating to the elevation and they're actually climbing up to the various camps and climbing back down and climbing up and climbing back down and they're exerting themselves. And what's, what's, phys, what's happening actually within their bodies is they're building up red blood cell counts that allow them to basically absorb more oxygen into their blood, which is really interesting. It's, it's, it's this process and the actual ascent to the summit is when they move to camps three, four, and then the summit. They spend a night at camp three adjusting, and that's just below what they call the, I, I'm, I'm forgetting the term, but like the, the danger zone where the altitude is, is just so high and the air is so thin that you can't really be there for more than a few hours, even on compressed oxygen. And then camp four, they're there maybe for a few hours before they start in the very early morning hours or, or very late at night, maybe midnight to ascend towards the summit. So always really interesting. I'm a geek for, for, for stuff like this. And so now you're asking Nate, what does this have to do with product? Well, I like the analogy of, of the mountain and a peak or something that is very, very difficult, something that we can look to and say, this is where we're going. And this is what we're striving for. These, this is the overall goal or objective that we as a company or as a product are trying to achieve. And so I look at the summit of, of a mountain like Everest and think it, like that is something that's very hard to do. It's something out there. It takes a lot of preparation. It takes a lot of work to actually get there. So I think of the summit as, as the vision or the product vision or the company vision. And then I think about that pathway to the top as the strategy, the product strategy, the company strategy of how you'll get there. And just like Everest uh, mentions, there's, there's 23 routes to the top. Some are more popular than others. There's no one right way or, or, or not to get there. And there's learning that goes along that path. And a lot of that learning is, is in these milestones or these, these camps along the way. So at each area, and this is where my, my analogy kind of di diverts, but within the product realm, we have check-in points or we should have check-in points along our strategy, working towards our vision that's saying, hey, is this working or not? Should we continue along this path or should we go a, a different route? And so I share that as, as just a basis of Oftentimes we, we use this term of, should we pivot or persevere from that original path? And we have these de decision points along the way. So we're here to talk about this concept of, of a product bet. And I like the, this word bet because nothing is, is 100% sure in, in what we do as, as product people. I often think of, of an analogy and a leadership that, that like a product leadership training I was in many, many years ago, where the concept of the ring toss, and, I, and frankly, I couldn't find a good picture of a ring toss. And so I found horseshoes, which is pretty close to it. But the, the idea is the same here, that in a ring toss game or this, this product leadership training I was in, they had this, this simple ring toss game is, is little pieces of rope with a, a little wood bead on the end that helped weight it down. 
And at at uh, one side there was this this little wooden dowel or pole, and then what they'd asked there, what they showed us is there was a tape mark for every foot back from that pole leading up to 20 feet. The way that they they were doing this is we were playing a game. There were four teams, and each member of the team had three tosses. The interesting thing behind this game was none of the teams could watch the other play the game because they didn't want to see what the strategy was behind you know, each team. They wanted to kind of, it was almost a little bit of like a psychological thing. And I was able to do this once as a, as a participant and a second time as an observer. And as an observer, what I saw was very, very interesting. One is that the scoring system was for every foot that you successfully made a, a ring or, 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 or caught the, the ring around the pole was worth a point. So if you toss that ring from 20 feet back and you made it, it was worth 20 points. And what was really interesting is to watch how people approach the strategy behind this game. A lot of people would walk in and you had really confident people that, that would step up for their first toss and then throw it from 20 feet thinking, you know, no problem, I'm going to hit this. The percentages of them hitting it are very, very low. And what they found very quickly with that 20-foot toss is they weren't going to hit it. And so the next thing they, they, they typically did is that maybe move up to, to 15 feet um, because they recognized that 20 was, was nearly impossible. And at 15 feet, they tossed again. And again, likelihood was very, very low. They missed it. Now they're down to their last toss and they haven't scored any points. So now there's this logic in their, in their head of, you know, I have one toss left and I could either just go up to the right up to the, you know, maybe one or two foot mark and put it on and get a sure one or two points, but I'm now too far ahead, too far back in the game. So I'm going to maybe toss it from eight feet and there's still an incredible amount of risk. And it was really interesting to watch how these teams approached it. As I observed, there was one, there, there were four teams total. Three of the teams kind of took the approach that I explained. And another team came in and they really talked it over for a minute. And what they ended up doing is the tall people. So the tall people that had a longer reach, they actually stepped up to about five feet and they could, they could bend over and with their long arms, they could almost just place the, the ring on the pole for a sure five points. And, and some of the shorter people like myself had to go to about two feet and would lean over and, and you, could just, you could just put it down. And so what you had was basically a sure toss. They knew that they could complete the toss. And while they were only making it at like two or three or five points a toss, it was, it was, they, it was, it was an easy win because when people were making 20 foot tosses, zero points was, was the result. So again, Nate, you know, why are you sharing this? You'll see. <laughs> so I want you to kind of ask yourself, like, what's, what's your company or your team's approach to risk? Like, how do you approach risk? How much risk are you, are you taking on? And like, what types of tosses is your team or your company making? Is your team or as you as a product leader, or product manager, are you making 20 foot tosses? Are you making 15 foot tosses? Are you making two foot tosses? 
what are those types of tosses that you're making? And I think what follows is what I'd propose are some ways to take what you might think originally felt like a 20 or a 15 foot toss and over time increase the probability of you making that, that overall. So a little bit of uh, context of, of what I see as a, as a bet and the components that go into it is there's got to be some level of data, some, some information you have to, to increase your knowledge or your odds of, of what, whether this may work or not. From that data, you might be able to create some insights about you know, what that tells you. And you probably form some sort of a belief in, in like what behavior may change based upon that data. Or maybe you're even creating a hypothesis of what may change. But ultimately, what I would, I would define a bet to be is an informed guess at what that value is going to bring to your customer. Again, it's an informed um, guess. So those words are almost like, you know, contradict themselves. But what you're doing is you're, is you're putting your best foot forward with what you know. So I want to give credit to John Cutler. John Cutler is a product leader at Amplitude. And someone that I follow on Twitter, and he actually just recently gave a, a talk at Mind the Product, and he was talking a little bit about the bet process, among other things. And he shared these, what, what he called types of bets. I'll let you just kind of read through those for a minute. But as you can see, there's a lot of variation in like, what is a big bet versus a small bet? Like, what's a, what's a more risky bet versus a safer bet, et cetera? And just a minute, I'm gonna, we're going we're gonna to talk through this in a little bit more detail, but he also talks about some metrics or outcomes that drive a bet. So oftentimes as product people, we have a very natural tendency to get into build mode or, or what I'd call build mode and output mode. Our roadmaps have a tendency to look like outputs over outcomes meaning build this or complete this instead of our roadmaps looking more like move this type of metric. And so these are some of the outcomes or metrics that you may consider and that John puts forth that, that we'll talk about a little bit more. And then I've, I've made some notes here about questions that you may want to consider when forming your bet. I think the biggest obviously is like, alignment. How does this align to your company vision, to your product vision, to your overall strategy? If you use OKRs within your organization, how does this align to OKRs? What are the kind of bet, you know, what kind of bet are you making based upon what we were, were talking about earlier, the levels of work needed? Who are the stakeholders? Who should be bought in or aligned to this bet within your, your team or your organization? Who can provide some level of subject matter expertise or data to inform us better in making a bet? And then how are we going to prioritize different levels of bets against everything else that we have to work on? So there's a lot to consider as, as we get into this. So now what I want to do is, is almost kind of jump into a high-level use case of two different types of bets. The first bet I want to talk about is maybe along these lines of a smaller bet, something that's that's a little bit safer. We've got some data. We have we already have some knowns 
that's what I want to jump into with this first use case. So oftentimes we talk about our product team or our, our whatever you call your, your team at wherever you work. At Pluralsight, we call them product experience teams or PX. Some people call them squads or whatever. And I think the important thing to me is who are the stakeholders within your, your team? Oftentimes we think about a product manager or product designer, software engineers, QA. I like to maybe think a little bit broader about what is the more holistic team that makes up the success. For us, we have content subject matter exp experts within our, our, our team that, that help us. We have machine learning engineers. We have data scientists and engineers. We have embedded DevOps engineers, but these are the people that help us actually succeed. And so in the mindset, as we talk about bets, I want to maybe change our, our thought process and the context is this is our investment group. Oftentimes, I think we think about the team is again, like this is our output team. These are the team. This, these are the people that are going to help us create these various outputs. But if we think of more in the framework of a bet, I, and, and we even thought about our team more as our investment group, I think would maybe think differently on how we prioritize the work we're, we're going about and the approach that we're taking, the amount of rigor that we go into the decision-making process, kind of going back to some of these questions above of like, what metrics are we ultimately trying to drive? What types of outcomes are we ultimately trying to create? And so I like to think about our team maybe a little bit more as an investment group, especially as what we're doing in a day-to-day -day and what I'd say kind of like within the, the standard product development lifecycle is we're making small incremental bets. But again, if we think about it in the formation of we're, we're making financial bets along the way, we as product people might approach the problems a little bit different. So whatever your process, you know, there's, there's, there's the double diamond, there's all sorts of user-centered design processes and, and, and methodologies for, for getting the work done. I'm not necessarily here to convince you about one way or another. And I know there's been a lot of talk in, in past Product Hive talks around what we do at Pluralsight, but our methodology is called directed discovery. And it's really based in the same user-centered design principles of discovery, design, development, and deployment. At the end of the day, what we're trying to do is think about it from the strategic initiative standpoint. This is the opportunity to think about your small bet. What are these, these small strategic initiatives? Maybe it's the quarterly uh, objectives that you put into your OKRs or your semi-annual OKR planning or your roadmap planning that you're updating your roadmap, whatever period of time. But what are these strategic initiatives that you're making? And these really, as we go back to the Everest analogy, these are your points within your climb or through the strategy at which you are actually stopping, you're pausing and saying, how am I going to invest my money? That, these are the activities that we're organizing our opportunities around or these phenomena. And as we do that, and we make a decision that says, we're going to make a bet on X. Now we put it through the process of empathizing with our customers, digging deep into discovery and the voice of the customer, 
then developing in, into prototypes and, and doing customer preference testing, and then ultimately deploying something and learning. Before I joined Pluralsight, I actually had a misunderstanding of, of this process. I looked at it and thought that what we'd call customer confirmation testing happened before you even deployed a product. And I think one thing that I want to call out that I think is really important is I don't think you can see my, my, my curse, but that, that period or that, that very small gap in my, in my, what you're seeing here between customer preference testing and customer confirmation testing, that is where you're building a product. And I think that's such an interesting point to consider as product people is this exercise or what you see here has nothing to do with writing code. And it has everything to do with understanding what the needs of the customer are and empathizing and, and working with them and iterating through things. What's happening actually in customer confirmation testing is you have deployed between customer preference testing and customer confirmation testing. Maybe that's going to an alpha group or a beta group, maybe a small group that you, you open up a feature flag to, but you're actually letting them experience the product that you've built. And the key is you're creating baseline data and you're learning because what that's going to do is it's gonna come back to the things that we said is it's going to give you information to inform future bets of, wait a second, we're moving from like a 20-foot a toss to a 15-foot toss or a 10-foot toss because we have data that's showing what's working and what's not working, whether it's quantitative data in the, the metrics and analytics that you're showing in the usage, or it's qualitative data as you follow up with, with your customers. But my point is, is that process going through this we, say, we often say at customer preference testing, until we feel like we're 80% confidence that this is going to create the outcome that we're driving, we're not going to build anything. So we get to that 80% confidence we build, and then we get from that 80 to 100% confidence through that customer confirmation testing, which is frankly like the hardest mile. So you're like, duh, Nate, tell us something we don't already know. You're probably very familiar with a lot of these processes that we've talked about. So what I want to maybe bring to your attention or, or for you to maybe consider about is what about these bigger bets? What about these bets that feel like 20 foot tosses? What about something that may take over a year to ultimately develop or that has a lot of risk and a lot of unknown? Maybe you have an idea that says, if we do X by, and I'll be maybe even be a little bit more specific. If we were to move into a whole new market with a, with a TAM that is, is like this big that we've never considered, or if we were to open up a whole new product line, we think it could do this. There's so many unknowns. And that to me is what you'd consider a big bet. So I want to propose what I think is a great way of solving this problem. So I come back to the investment group. In a small bet, this is your investment group. It's your product team. To me, when you get into a bigger bet where you're, you're taking a lot more risk, I would propose that you change the investment group to look a little bit more like this. Now the players that you have are 
yeah, it's, it's the leadership of your product team. It's the product manager, the designer, and the tech lead. But now your investment group is possibly the CEO and the CFO and the head of product and head of engineering and head of strategy. And what you're saying is basically you're pitching them on a new idea. If we do X, we think Y can happen. We, we have some data. It's, 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 it's a limited amount of data, but we have a belief that if we do this, we can accomplish this. We, again, this is a big bet, right? So now I want to take this back to the ring toss. Our bet kind of up in the, in the top in the green is, is made up of like, hey, this is a really big investment. It's really risky. We're not sure exactly what's going to happen. It's a huge gamble. gamble. It's maybe isolated, meaning it's a whole new like greenfield opportunity. What I would propose is we don't have to, to modify much. And what I mean by that is just as you would if you were gonna go into a startup and you're, you have a brand new idea, the, the, the process doesn't change. So maybe you're in a pre-seed round. And so I'll use the analogy of, hey, you have an idea. Maybe you and, and the product designer you work with or the pro- you as the product designer and the product manager you work with have an idea. You're putting together that strategic initiative. You're starting to look at the the knowns and unknowns. You're starting to build a business case. You're starting to put together a potential project plan of how how you might be going uh, about this. And now what you're doing is you're thinking about it from back again of like, hey, I need to go to my investment group of this big bet and I wanna present something. And so maybe your team looks like this where it's just you and the product manager and the product designer. This is a very small investment. Maybe you're taking a little bit of time on the side of whatever else you're working on right now to do a little bit of research to put together this this business uh, case or basically a pitch deck to take to this expanded investment group. But you're going through the same methodology. You're going to go out, you're going to do some research, and you're going to build that business case along with some data going through the same thing. And then what you're doing is you're going to pitch that to your investment group and create what I'd call milestones. Now, milestones aren't necessarily anything new to investment. Oftentimes, we think about investment from the criteria of of like tranche investments or someone saying, hey, I'm committed to, to, if you are a startup and, and you work with a VC, they might say, hey, I'm committed to you for $40 million over time. But right now in this, in this seed round, I'm, I'm willing to, 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 to pitch in 2 million. So your investments start stall, small, which means your team starts small. And what I wanna express to you is you're going back to this internal investment group, basically saying we need some level of investment and alignment to what we're trying to do. And maybe that means our, our team is small. We're asking for some time where product manager, product designer, and maybe like the tech lead are spending a day a week. And that maybe turns into two days a week working on some of these concepts. And all that you're doing is you're evolving that investment over time to where ultimately you're establishing agreed upon milestones that says, 
just the three of us are going to worry about working on this right now. We're not going to bring any other engineers into this. We're going to we're going to kind of do our thing. But let's create some milestones that if we can come back and we can show this type of advancement in in whatever the milestone is, whether it's this type of research, whether it's this type of data, identifying the product market fit that is required to do X, Y, or Z, then we can move into the next round, which that next round, as you go back to the investment group again, and I, I often think about these as the base camps along the way of your route to say, hey, we, we've come upon this information over the last three months or six months that we've been working on this bet. And now you as this investment group say, should we pivot or persevere? Should we continue on this route? Should we completely kill this idea? Should we go a different route? And now you, you make those decisions and create new milestones for the next level of bet, or you just kill the bet altogether. Ultimately getting to the point where as you get from maybe this early stage round of the bet to the late stage round, your team looks more like this because your investment group has started to say, hey, you've continued to meet these milestones and these outcomes along the way that by the time you get there, now you have a full product experience team built around this new concept. And in a way you've started a whole new, new product line or whatever that, that bet was, was originally formed to start. So that's the concept I wanted to maybe have you think about is what is the difference between, whoops, between a small bet that, hey, this is what you're doing on a daily basis. You're making these very small bets. They're small, they're incremental. You feel like there's not a lot of going into it. But as you make these bigger bets, they feel like a 20 foot toss. But as you start to create these milestones, and slowly pick away at the outcomes that you're trying to drive, this what felt like a 20 foot bet ultimately turns into now maybe what I'd call like a five to eight foot toss or bet. So that's what I wanted to share with you today. And I'll go to questions. Great, so the first question we have is, what is the smallest size bet that could independently go through the DD process? What is the smallest size bet that go through the directed discovery process? I think it's, it's it, you know, to me, directed discovery is, again, just a methodology. I think if you consider the steps in the process from building a strategic initiative to going and doing the interviews for the voice of the customer to, to the, the prototyping and customer preference testing and so on, I don't believe you have to go through every step of that process every single time. So to answer that question, I'd say really it's, it's like what level of, of work needs to be done to ultimately get to the outcome you're trying to drive. If it's something very, very simple, maybe you don't need to go out and do 20 customer interviews to understand the problem that you already have a deep understanding of. Maybe you jump directly to a customer preference testing or a prototype where you're saying, hey, the data is showing that people are struggling with, with this. I'll give you an example right now that, that one of my teams is working on. We just have new data come in. We, so a little bit about uh, 
what I'm working on at Pluralsight and my and, and the teams that I work with, we build what we call hands-on learning experiences. So Pluralsight has historically been known for video content. What we've been building over the last two years is the ability to practice the things that you're learning. So if you're learning the code in Python, our teams are building environments for you to come in in a in-browser coding experience and code along with the video experience or get specific instructions or challenges that, that basically help you practice those skills along the way. One of the ways that we do that is we provide what we call a sandbox. So if someone's watching a video, they can click a button that says launch sandbox. And as they're watching that video, they can have a plural site code editor right there. If they're learning Python, for example, they can be coding along with the instruction of the instructor. And we, we just launched this on March 31st. And the data that is showing, I mean, in a short amount of time is that we don't have a lot of engagement in people hitting that, that button. So to me, I don't know that it's a, we go back to the drawing board and say, hey, we've got to interview more people and make sure and like understand if there's a problem around this or this pain point that they've been telling us for a long, long time that says, hey, I want to practice along with, with what I'm learning because I learn best by doing. We feel very confident that that's, that's the problem we need to solve. But this is like a minute, small problem where we say people aren't engaging with that. So now we can jump to CPT and maybe we run some experiments around adding some sort of guide. I don't know, for lack of a better term, like some call out that this is a new new feature of the video courses where you can launch a sandbox because maybe people aren't seeing the button. Maybe people, we need to experiment with different colors of the button to see what's working and what, what's not working. So I, I would approach it as to like, what level of information do you need to get to, to drive that outcome? And it, it could be very, very small, like changing a color button to drive, you know, deeper engagement in, in what you're doing. I hope that helps. Next question is, have you successfully implemented the investment team model you explained? And what is the expected participation from the wider team? And how did you get there? So this investment model is something that I'm actually in the middle of proposing right now to, to leadership here at Pluralsight. The di- desire behind it is I want to allow a more bottom-up approach, meaning I want to create an environment where any member of uh, a product experience team can come up with a good idea and present it. So if you think back to that process of Maybe you have a strategic initiative or you have something that you think can drive a particular outcome that shouldn't be owned only by a product manager or the head of product or the CEO. My theory is that anyone should should be able to present a great idea. And so I'm presenting that right now at Pluralsight to kind of increase, I, I hate this term, but like innovative thought within the organization. As far as having done it, there's a couple of people on this call that worked with us at at Instructure. And at Instructure, this is where I I first kind of came across this concept of of the bet process. And this is exactly what Instructure did. They had basically what they called a bet committee that was made up of the CEO, the CFO, other C-suite members, as well as product leadership. And I think it was every six months the BET committee met and they reviewed new proposals. They went over milestones on current BETs and basically said, you know, we're going to 
persevere or we're going to pivot or we're going to continue to invest. And I can think of one product in particular, I'm forgetting the name, maybe someone can jump in and help me out, but it was a video experience that was added into Canvas and uh, Bridge that was all brought about through the BET process. And that was simply started by a product manager working with a product designer for a period of time. And over time, they increased the, the investment in that BET to where it became a full-fledged team. ARC, yeah, that's the name of the product is ARC. So that all came from, I, I believe, someone's idea. Oh, it's now called Studio. Thanks, Kendall, formerly ARC. So I, I kind of throw it out. And part of the reason why I wanted to talk about this is I'm, as I said, I'm in the middle of proposing this to some leadership at Pluralsight because I, I see it as a great opportunity to, to approach these, these bigger bets. Great. Next question is, when gathering data and getting customer feedback, at what point do you know that you're at that 80% confidence threshold and how much do you rely on data versus your intuition? Yeah, it's a good mix. Uh, it, it's important, I think, uh, that you're going through both quantitative and qualitative data. So we typically say when we do interviews, when we do voice the customer interviews, that you're interviewing anywhere from five to 20 people around a specific problem space in voice of the customer. And then as you go into customer preference testing or kind of like the prototype testing and validation that you're, you're, you're doing those same numbers, because ultimately what you're looking for is repeatable data. So you're wanting to see that people are having the, the same common problem or the same common success. And as, as you, as you work through those numbers, you know, 80% is kind of like kind of the said statement. I don't know that we have a, a definitive number that we're like, hey, boom, like on Thursday at 3.20 p.m., we hit 80%, but more of a, a general feel that we know based upon the, the interviews that we're having with customers or the data that we're getting. And, and that quantitative data is a little bit harder until you've actually released at least an MVP version product <clears throat> to be able to, to get that that baseline data, but it's, it's a combination of all of the above, the quantitative data, the qualitative data, and over time instinct of, we know we've kind of found what we need to, to find. Great. Yeah, we use the 80% confidence rule here as well. And I liked how you said that you get to the 100% confidence by doing that customer confirmation testing. So any other questions? Got another one. How do you mitigate the risk of upper management stakeholders on the investment team that might unintentionally over-influence the investment team? Josh, that's a great question. I, I don't know. I, I, you know, to be honest, I, I, I haven't experienced that. And so I, 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 I don't have a good answer other than I'll just kind of give you my opinion, um, not based upon experience, but I think I, my mind basically goes back to data again. There is a tendency often, as, as we all know, that what, what do we call it? The highest per, the hippo or the highest paid person's opinion typically weighs more than others. And so I think you remove that by having a culture where upper management are held to the same standard of the process. And, and what that process may mean is either if they have an opinion or an idea that they need to be held to the same standard of them or 
them doing the work or assigning the work to be done to do the research to show that there's value. The other thing that, oh shoot, I lost my train of thought on this, but oh, is around bias is that, you know, there's a tendency for all of us to have bias in our research or, or obviously have strong opinions or passion around certain things. And, and that's very, very dangerous. So, you know, in this case, I think a lot of it comes down to culture and, and culture at the top. If, if you work within an organization that's very top down and is, is kind of run through a dictatorship, frankly, I say, good luck to you and go find another job. And, but if you're in a culture where there's more equality and, and there's more work bottom up, then hopefully leadership can be held accountable to the same standard that they expect their people to be held to and, and by doing the, the right amount of homework and research and removing bias because bias is, and, and a note about data, obviously anyone can manipulate data to tell the story that they need to tell. It comes down to accountability across the board. Opinion. I just want to say, I love people's feedback and thoughts on, on this, this concept. As I mentioned, I've seen it work in, in other organizations. I'm trying to implement it where I work now and just kind of in the very beginnings. And I'd love, you know, to, to have a conversation and brainstorm with other people on maybe what's worked for them and what, what hasn't worked and uh, how you can maybe make that effective. Are you referring to the investment team in particular? Yeah. 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 Yeah, So if anyone wants to give thoughts and feedback, feel free to on product hive and, and we can kind of collaborate a little bit more there. Dave just said, here's a link to John Cutler's talk, also some good stuff. So yeah, that's the talk. Thanks. Thanks, Dave. That's the talk I, I was referencing in, in some of my slides. So thanks for sharing. Awesome. Well, good. I just wanted to say, Nate, thank you so much. I love the Everest analogy, the thought of pivoting. There are a lot of different ways to make it to the top of the mountain. So how do you do that? I love the, the story, the analogy of the ring toss. You know, are we doing a 20 foot toss? Are we doing a two foot toss? And if you do feel like you come up to that 20 foot bet that you're having to make, you can break that down into smaller milestones to, to make it less of a risky bet. So really great, great approach. And I'm excited to listen to it back. Okay. Thanks everybody. A big thanks to Nate Barrett for presenting. And again to Lucid for sponsoring the event. If you learned some things from Nate's talk, be sure to share it with your team or share it on Twitter and mention us at product underscore hive. Sharing these talks is a great way to support Product Hive. As always, be sure to check out all our upcoming events. You can find them by searching for Product Hive on meetup.com. And while you're there, go ahead and join the group so you always get the latest updates. We also have a YouTube channel where you can find videos of all the past talks. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in your feed soon, and we'll see you at one of our next events. We're <laughs> so